the Daily Rios for April 4th, 2013. Two weeks ago, I dropped the first of three DC Noise episodes that I helped to create for Derek Coward's Comic Book Noise Network. So today, it's a throwback to December 7th, 2007, with a rebroadcast of DC Noise Episode 2. In this episode, you're going to hear follow-ups to the news from Episode 1. You're going to hear me talk about Greg Rucka leaving DC at that time, some Paul Pope collections, and then I hit the meat of the episode with an extended look at Richard Donner's Superman cut, Superman 2, and then I talk about the Crisis on Infinite Earths sequel, Crisis of the Soul. Bet you didn't know that there was a sequel. Uh, the sound is a little wonky. I remember recording this speaking very close to the laptop that I had at the time because I didn't have any kind of mic set up. So keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that this is from 2007, so the info and contact info is, you know, old. And as always, thanks to Derek Coward and the DC Noise crew. So here you go. DC Noise, Episode 2. In this sophomore episode, Greg Rucka says no-no to re-upping his DC exclusive. A couple of collections from Vertigo and Paul Pope are on their way. A look at Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut. And finally, the Crisis sequel you've never seen. All this and more on today's episode of DC Noise. Welcome to DC Noise. I'm your host, Peter Rios. First up, obviously the sound to this episode is not going to be as good as it was for episode one. Hopefully you can bear with me. I just don't want to go another week without recording an episode, so there you go. First up, a few items to follow up on last week's episode. Over on the Brian K. Vaughn forum, Tony Harris posted an image of what I assume is to be the cover of one of next year's Starman Omnibus Collections. The image features Jack Knight, his father Ted Knight, the fallen Starman David Knight, and of course the enigmatic shade, all surrounded by the usual Tony Harris Starman artist, artistic style of design elements. Uh, you can see this image on the bkv.tv forum and also on the DC Noise Episode 1 forum thread, both linked in the show notes. Also from last episode, Gail Simone was recently featured in the New York Times article Wonder Woman Gets a New Voice and is Female, dated November 27th and written by George Gustines highlighting her status as, quote, the first woman to serve as ongoing writer in the character's 66-year history, the article gives a rundown of Simone's bio and career to date and also recounts the rocky start of the current Wonder Woman series. About her run in the series, Simone states, We have the first year and the second year mapped. I plan on being around as long as they'll have me. Obviously, Simone is not the first female writer on the series. Jody Picoult penned a five-part story arc, that unfairly threw the author into having to pick up the pieces of the debacle that was the Alan Heinberg arc, while also expecting her to deal with the ins and outs of a crossover event called Amazon's Attack. Other female writers on the character include Mindy Newell, who wrote three issues prior to the cancellation of the original Wonder Woman run, and over ten issues of the Perez run, and also Trina Robbins, who co-wrote the Legend of Wonder Woman miniseries with Kurt Busiek. Gail Simone is arguably the highest-profile woman writer in mainstream comics today, so I certainly understand the attention, and it is well-deserved. For DC's third-ranking character, however, DC could do a bit more. Wonder Woman has never had to si simultaneous multiple titles across the board the way Superman and Batman have had, 
and it's a very short uh, list of original graphic novels or limited series that feature her as a headline. The only one that comes to mind at the moment is uh, the Hikatea, which, by the way, from the cover, you'd think it was a Batman book. With art by J.G. Jones, the Hikatea was written by Greg Rucka, who just so happens to be the focus of this week's upcoming top news item. Surely there's a For All Seasons or Long Halloween tale waiting to be told using the character of Wonder Woman. For a follow-up to my Wonder Woman 14 mini-review, Paul French of the Poptopia podcast added his thoughts in regards to Nemesis. He says, um, I think you are correct in your assessment of Nemesis as a stand-in for Steve Trevor. I'm wondering when we'll see Colonel Trevor as we've seen Etta return in such a way that it appears the Perez reboot of an older Trevor who ended up marrying an elder Etta, uh, older Etta Candy is out the window. Does this mean that we'll soon be seeing a triangle between Diana, Steve, and Nemesis if he makes his return? In the meantime, I'm enjoying Nemesis getting some time in the sun. I loved his run in Brave and the Bold back in the early 80s and was really pleased when he turned up in Ostrander's Suicide Squad to such great use. To me, his characterization has been a bit off in the Heinberg and Bacalt runs. He seems a bit too much of a hothead, which is not at all what his previous incarnations would indicate. If there's anyone who can make him work, it's Simone, so I'm pleased to see him in such great hands. In current news, Greg Rucka stunned the entire internet community by commenting on his blog that he would not re-up his exclusive contract with DC. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the actual post so you can hear, um, put it all into context, basically. He says, several months back or so, it seems, I did an interview with Andrew Farago for the Comics Journal, which is, incidentally is uh, 287, which is on sale now. Like all journal interviews, it was, or at least it felt, pretty exhaustive. And Andrew was great to talk to. And all in all, I think it came out well. And I even managed to avoid saying anything I was sure I'd regret later. Greg Rucker later writes, The timing on this is interesting. I've been in a slump for the last six to eight weeks or so, dealing with a variety of issues related to writing in general, and my writing in particular. Continued frustrations in dealing with people who really ought to know how to do their jobs properly, for instance, and the lethargy that seems to always set in just in time to really complicate the already exceptionally complicated rush into the holidays. I don't know if it's just sad from living in the Pacific Northwest during weather like this, and for a wonderful write-up on, um, let's see, I'll skip that, or something else, but like clockwork, my mood and my productivity both go to hell in a handbasket around my birthday. Uh, I was in L.A. on personal business the last two days, and I got to spend some time with my brother and his bride. Um, and that was good for the soul, especially opposite the contortions I've been going through the last several weeks. I feel better. I've made some decisions. One of them is that I'm not renewing my exclusive with DC. Others less deserving of announcement at the moment, but of no less important to myself and my family. So, obviously, uh, in his, this was, that was the comment that set the internet community on fire, uh, but in his comment section, he had two more responses. Uh, the first one was in regards to the 52 Aftermath miniseries, The Crime Bible, Five Lessons in Blood. He says, thanks for pushing the book, and yet it should have been called The Question. And then also when asked about his decision to not re-up his contract, he responded with, it's contingent on many, many things. I love DC's characters, 
Those are the ones I feel I have the most passion for, but we'll see what happens. Thanks for the kind wishes. So following his initial blog posting, obviously was an internet wildfire of everything from understanding to what he was talking about to down with corporate properties. Uh, the reactions to his musings prompted Rucka to write a second blog entry which I'll paraphrase. He says, um, I have to remember that people actually read this thing. Not seeing you folks, it's easy to forget that there's a whole lot of eyes that find these words that I never know about. Uh, let the record show the following then. I am not suffering from health-related issues. I am not leaving comics forever. I am not launching a bloody and prolonged vendetta against those who've done me wrong, at least not yet. I'm just not exclusive to DC any longer. And my reasons for the decisions are many, varied, and in some cases quite complicated, and in other cases very, very simple. Are there things that could have transpired to have changed my decision? Absolutely. But remembering all of your eyes are on this, these are things that I don't feel should or need to be aired in a public forum. That is, to me, unprofessional. And despite my many failings at, aspir at aspiring to be such, I'm still going to make that effort. It is now the end of 2007. I've been exclusive to DC since roughly my daughter was born in the summer of 2003. That's four and a half years carrying water for one company alone, to the exclusion of many other projects and opportunities. There are things I want to do, and I want to be proud of them when they hit the stands. Where I do that work, what that work will be, remains to be seen. But at the end of the day, that's all that this is about. I want to be in a position to do the work I am passionate about and to do it well in the manner I wish to do it. Uh, I want to thank everyone who offered such generous comments. I was sincerely surprised by the amount of attention the announcements brought. The support and kindness is truly appreciated. Now get back to work. That's what I'm going to do. That was uh, Greg Rucka's second blog entry on the matter. In the end, all announcements uh, of exclusive contracts really are just little more than look who won't be working for our competition anymore. So... In essence, this just frees Rucka up to work for DC if he so chooses to start working for Marvel again and opens the door for other companies. After a year of intense writing for 52, and Rucka has certainly been the most vocal about that experience, it only makes sense for him to want to stretch his wings, especially a writer that has created a successful creator-owned series such as Queen and Country. Ultimately, uh, a question series penned by Rucka, you know, I guess will not be in the cards. DC Comics reprints two classic vertical titles by award-winning creator Paul Pope. This is from DC's uh, current direct channel. Both Heavy Liquid and 100% are going back to press for new editions and will be back in stock. The new printing of Heavy Liquid is scheduled to arrive in stores on January 30th with a cover price of $29.95. Publisher Weekly's uh, Publisher Weekly wrote a synopsis, and they said, Set in a moodily re rendered New York and Paris about the year 2075, Heavy Liquid is an urban love story transformed by science fiction into a bracing, futuristic, international crime thriller. It is the story of S., a former drug agent turned private investigator and petty criminal. He's addicted to Heavy Liquid, a mysterious hallucinatory substance sought after by different characters for its various properties. A mysterious and wealthy art collector wants it to be cast in a work of art. A gang of ruthless masked gunmen know that it can be used as an, an efficient, powerful explosive. And an equally hard-nosed government agency knows its shrouded origin and wants the stuff out of circulation. But S's use of heavy liquid 
produces an effect far beyond its mind-bending high. It seems to produce a powerful shadow life form that inhabits its mind and body, or is it just a delusional byproduct of heavy liquids potent, uh, potent high? The new printing of 100% trade paperback, that's scheduled to arrive in March 2nd with a cover price of $24.99. Set in a gritty near future, 100% juggles three separate but interconnected stories that revolve around a downtown Manhattan nightclub um, that include artists, erotic dancers, and prize fighters, barmaids, and busboys. So if all you know of Paul Pope is Batman Year 100, here are two collections in the future that are worth it. Finally in the news, if you hadn't heard about the battle raging between a BitTorrent comic book tracker and DC and Marvel and even Top Cow, you must fill yourselves in. It is too interesting to ignore and is in many ways a flashpoint for the ongoing to download or not to download debate. Fueling both sides in the argument, the online chatter is far more heated than the actual correspondence between the tracker and the publishers, but it does seem like as the publishers ramp up their own authorized download content, they want the unauthorized downloading sites to go away. And if one site is the initial target, how long before that number grows? Far too lengthy and juicy to go into major detail in just a few minutes. I'll just let the situation speak for itself. You can find the necessary links in the show notes to the various articles on the situation. Moving away from news, I recently had the pleasure, uh, the absolute pleasure, of seeing the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. Finally, the best superhero movie of all time now has a worthwhile sequel. Throwing out the camp and putting in continuing themes from Superman 1, Superman 2, the Donner Cut is edgier, smarter, and ultimately more powerful. Probably the biggest thing that you'll realize from watching the original Superman 2 to watching the Donner Cut is just how much footage has been cut from the uh, from from Donner's vision. Um, there's, first of all, the amazing Jor-El Marlon Brando stuff. There's more Phantom Zone scenes, The Daily Planet, Lois Clark. Characters just feel like they got their due in terms of stage time, and the dreaded France opening is gone. The campiness of the Niagara Falls sequence is gone. The slapstick quality of the major battle between Superman and the Phantom Zone villains is gone, but yet there still is a lot of humor. The father-son relationship is powerful to watch, and the opening scene where the Phantom Zone villains are freed is chilling. They seem far more alien in this version and also far more in line with their um, sort of goal of, of attacking, quote-unquote, Jor-El or his heirs. His heirs. Um, the, obviously, the, the threads start to pull a little bit in the Final Fortress confrontation. You can tell these scenes needed to be reshot. They felt unfinished. But, um, you know... Obviously, this is all in hindsight. Donner wasn't able to work with these characters, and he had to work with what he shot. I imagine that given had he stayed on as director, if he wasn't fired, maybe the ending would have been able to be uh, been able to be tweaked. Um, uh, the turning back time sequence did feel jarring, but since I knew it was always meant for two and not one, I could let it go. And they do also include the scene where he goes back into the restaurant to pick on the bully. And that also sort of doesn't make sense with the way the story unfolds in the new cut. Um, there are other significant plot changes that are far too good to give away. 
But the other aspect that rings true is the dual identity of Superman and Clark. It's a difficult decision in this version that is given more credibility, the decision of him wanting to turn into a hum regular human. Um, the Superman zone fight is harsher, and um, obviously the ending isn't the cleanest, but knowing what Donner intended for both movies, it just it sort of makes sense, and you've got to give that a little bit of leeway. Considering that the movie is made up of everything from cut scenes to unfinished scenes to even um, um, screen tests, it's just amazing how well this story uh, is put together and how much it continues from, from uh, the first movie. So Superman 2, The Donner Cut, it is completely worth your time to view it if you haven't already. And it's one of the few director's cuts that really is deserving of the label. And now a sequel that you haven't seen, Crisis of the Soul, which is the sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths, as featured in Tomorrow's Publishing's back issue number nine, written by back issue editor Michael Yuri. DC wanted to follow the success of the 1985-86 Crisis on Infinite Earths with another maxi-series. The next big DC event that we're familiar with is Legends, written by John Ostrander and Len Wein, with art by John Byrne and Carl Kessel, and edited by Mike Gold. But Legends may never have, been, never have seen the light if Crisis of the Soul hadn't been shelved. The brainchild of Paul Levitt's Crisis of the Soul's basic premise runs as follows, and I'm going to read uh, directly from back issue number nine. Throughout the history of the universe, there have been tides of evil that have swept over worlds, bringing with them the doom of civilization, species, and even the destruction of entire planets. The source of these tides have never been isolated, but they have been, but they have been beyond any possible opposition. Too rapid, powerful, too final, and in the ultimate analysis, too unpredictable, except for the fact that they inevitably reoccur. The tide has come to Earth in the person of a seductively handsome young man on a beautiful spring morning. He walks into a small town in America attracted by the coming crisis moment in Earth's destiny. He swiftly moves from city to town across the globe in a pattern we cannot discern, searching and investigating this world to which he has come. He is the corrupter, the living tide come to take Earth. He is a living catalyst for evil who delights in the souls he ruins and feeds upon. Virtually immortal and timeless, he is tremendously powerful and committed to his aims with a passion rare among DC villains. Um, the Crisis of the Soul was to be written by Paul Levitz with dialogue by Len Wein, art by Jerry Ordway, and edited by Robert Greenberger. It would feature characters such as the Corrupter, who is described as... Um, wielding a jewel that exposes the reflections of the tormented souls he has ensnared. Uh, he's a dark angel in seductive guise. Um, he plays a grand game of cat and mouse that has a domino effect on society. Also, in another character is the Manipulator. And the Manipulator is Trammel Solomon a Machiavellian capitalist who contains much poten potential for good or evil. Um, he's secretly, secretly constructing a penitentiary for supervillains and has aspirations to build an adjacent spaceport for reasons that are initially unclear but suspicious. Eventually, the missions of the two characters, the Manipulator and the Corrupter, uh, intersect with dire results. And there's another character, media mongol David Allen Cross, 
who grow skeptical of superheroes after witnessing some of them turn evil. It was DC's intention to have Cross remain as a supporting cast player in their titles post-Soul. Um, uh, also to be featured were characters such as Cosmic Boy, The Controllers, The Phantom Stranger, and Guy Gardner with a new name of Iron Lantern. So where Infinite Crisis was meant to be cosmic, Crisis of the Soul was meant to be personal. It also went by the title Crisis at the Heart of Darkness, but it never came to be. And why was why what was the reason for that? Uh, Michael Yuri surmises that um, with the hiring of Mike Gold, the entire project um, became something else. Dick Giordano, at the time DC's editorial director, offered Gold the opportunity to create a Crisis 2 after Crisis of the Soul fizzled. Mike Gold in the article is pretty determined to state that Legends, which is the series that he would eventually go on to edit and create, is not a reimagining of Crisis of the Soul. He, he states that he pretty much started from a blank slate. Now, obviously, there are comparisons that both the article and uh, a casual reading of both the premise of Crisis of the Soul and Legends can sort of show um, the whole idea of uh, manipulating superheroes and the character of G. Glorious Godfrey from Legends is familiar, you know, pretty much runs the same track as uh, what was going to happen with the Corruptor. And using Phantom Stranger as um, characters in both, also it could could be seen that Darkseid was a manipulator behind things, much like the way of this manipulator character. So this article has uh, some sketches from Jerry Ordway. It has a few more details on the ins and out of the Crisis of the Soul sequel. And um, it also has some of the plot points, tie-ins, and spin-offs, such as um, an Amethyst Dr. Fate crossover would reveal that the Corruptor's Gen is linked to Gemworld. Um, Peacemaker would use Cosmic Boy's time bubble to go to the 21st century in a hex crossover. The elongated man is forced to kill kill to save Sue Dibney. Star City would be destroyed. Um, because the Guardians of the Universe at this time were in stasis, uh, the controllers would, which were a offshoot of the same race that created the Guardians of the Universe, would redouble their efforts to sort of uh, play a part in Earth's history or in their destiny. There would have been a new Freedom Fighters, um, and uh, the Creeper would have had a miniseries as well. So it's a fascinating article from back issue number nine that talks about Crisis of the Soul, the lost uh, sequel to Crisis on Infinite Earths, what they call the greatest story never told. And it is sort of interesting that there is no explanation about why Crisis of the Soul was shelved, other than to say, perhaps with Paul Levitt's, uh, with, that, with his growing responsibilities with DC as a company, um, he just could not put it into his schedule anymore. There was major work done, contracts were made up, but the series never took off. So do yourselves a favor, go to tomorrowspublishing.com, check out back issue number nine. Uh, it's a fascinating look at behind the scenes of what could have been. Finally, in this episode, in lieu of any kind of uh, review, uh, I want to suggest that you go to DC Comics' website, dccomics.com, and give a second look, just to keep the theme going of this episode, on some of the titles that they have offered there. 
Um, they have first issues up uh, that you can read on their site of things that, like 100 Bullets, Animal Man, Books of Magic, DMZ, Ex Machina, Exterminators, Fables, Doom Patrol, Preacher, Sandman, Loveless, Scouts, Transmet, Y, and so on and so forth. Um, most of those are vertical titles, um, but they do have a few Wildstorm and regular DC Universe as well, as well, CMX and some other things. So do yourselves a favor, give them a second look. Um, if you haven't tried them out, they are for free um, on their site. So uh, some of those titles are certainly, you know, fascinating reads. Uh, the first issue may not give you all the, the, um, the, the flavor of those series, but they might at least whet your appetite. I also want to thank all the feedback that I got, whether they were in emails or on the DC Noise Episode 1 forum thread. I really do appreciate all the feedback, and I read it all. You can continue to send messages to peterjohnrios at gmail.com. You can also join thecomicforums.com and go to Comic Book Noise and... Derek will post the DC Noise Episode 2 thread. Again, there's no form, but you can certainly join, uh, leave comments in the thread itself. And uh, thank you again to Derek Coward. Thank you to the Comic Book Noise family. And I will talk with you next time.